This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Rel Levizo Mori, who's the co-founder or the founder and designer at Silver Lining Bespoke. Rel, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Seems like I saw you days ago, but on a different side of the country. Right. Right. I never know where you are. <laughs> so I I'm, should I'm still here. I'm you're still there. there. Yeah. So I, I should disclose that I know Rel quite well. She's Wharton uh finished her MBA with the class of twenty fifteen and the executive MBA program in San Francisco. And I think it's even true you were in my class, right? I was in your class. Yeah. I learned a lot in it. Yeah. That's so the plug. So I've known Ralph for, for quite some time and we were just at an event, but in San Francisco. I'm now in, in Philadelphia. So, uh, Rel, let's get started. You're involved in a lot of stuff, but I want to start with Silver Lining Bespoke. And yeah. if you the 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 URL is just silverliningbespoke.com. So I'm going right. to point our listeners to that website. Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us what it's about. Yeah. Um, well, the the backstory is that when I was a kid, um, I loved uh, art class and uh, grew up on the East Coast, and so we had a lot of rained-out recess days. So whenever it rained, we had to stay inside and do arts and crafts, and so that was literally my silver lining. You know, other kids were bouncing off the walls, and I just I just loved that. So um, fast forward to wanting to start a, a company, um, and um, I had this idea to make outerwear lined with artwork. Um, so we take... Uh, different works of art from, um, you know, paintings, canvas, uh, paper, and we translate those digitally into fabric and create the linings for um, our garments, which include structured jackets, um, streetwear, and uh, different types of accessories. Um, And so our kind of motto is it's what's inside that counts. And uh, we try to give back a portion of our profits to arts education programs for children. It's great. That's a great full arc to the narrative. It's very cool that you give back to arts education. You know, I I would say if you think back to product design class, which you took from me, um, I I would have advocated or I do advocate very much for a needs driven approach to innovation, which is go find some itch out there and scratch it. Uh, find some pain point and create a painkiller. That's not really what this is. It's much more vision-driven and sort of idea-driven. Maybe just reflect a little bit on that. Is you know, did you think what 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 is there must be an underlying need, but what is the underlying need? Why do people buy? Well, I think that you know, for myself as a consumer, um, you know, I I appreciate the, the art of the detail, and so um, I think that. Uh, being able to create products that have a bit more individuality and that focus on the detail in a, in a really subtle way is, um, is an interesting challenge as a designer. Um, and I think that the other need really does come out of the focus on the give back. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, as more companies 
um, start and and begin to get more focused on having a a driving social mission that is you know at core affiliated with them. Um, we are able to raise awareness for all kinds of issues that um, you know maybe didn't get a lot of limelight before. And I think that arts education is something that is is important to me as close to my heart, but it's also something that I think um, is important just in terms of innovation, talking about how uh, when you teach creativity, you're really teaching how to think outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And I always give the analogy that if you um, put a blank piece of paper in front of an adult and give them, you know, a box of crayons and say, hey, fill this up and, and, and make something cool for me out of it. You know, there's a lot of hesitation. It's a very um, intimidating thing to ask someone. It seems so simple, but, um, you know, people don't know where to begin. And, and I've done this with, you know, my, my classmates, actually. Um, and uh, if you give that same piece of paper and box of crayons to a kid, they will give you a really uh, interesting insight into their mind. Um, and I think that that's what's interesting, and that sometimes gets... Uh, uh, we get further away from that speed of innovation and that speed of creativity and how you can create something from nothing. And so um, I think it's a it's a very circular way to have a fashion company that um, is aligned with that. But at its heart, that's that's something that's um, important for me to highlight and a need that I see kind of um, in the social space. Yeah, and I, I would, I think everything you said is right on. I would add that in very mature product categories, often it's some of these second-order attributes which become decisive for the consumer. And furthermore, apparel is a little bit different as a category in the sense that for most people, what they wear is often an extension of their personality. It's a form of self-expression. And so the needs are already quite intangible and it's not really about staying warm and dry in, in many mm-hmm. cases. Um, and so it, it may be this kind of more vision-driven approach actually is quite appropriate in those categories because people are looking for something that's distinctive and is consistent with the way they want to express themselves. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that people, you know, as you, you know, innovation is in, in fashion and, and um, industry of um Goods that we consume on a daily basis is going to be much more incremental and, and much smaller um, and subtle, um, but it still has great value to the person who cares about it. Yeah, so just to make it a little more mundane, let's talk a little bit about the, the products. I was amused. I I only looked at the menswear because I was sort of checking out what I would buy uh, today, and the uh, you have some very snarky comments about. I mean, it's it's. I highly recommend checking out the website. It's there's some quite uh, nicely written copy. But the you have a hoodie which you describe as something along the lines of yeah, just as lo- ugly and shapeless as every other hoodie out there, uh, which is I think appropriately self-deprecating. But you have this cool hoodie, which what's cool about it is this really vibrant lining. And then you have a uh, a jacket, nice jacket, uh, outerwear for men. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, what are, what does the women's line look like? And maybe give us a sense of what some of the price points are. Yeah, well, I would say that it's interesting because as we started out and as a, as a company with um, that's only been around for a few years, we have started had a steep learning curve in terms of you know our customer profile and understanding that. And so when we started out, we really we're focusing on very structured garments, um, 
formal things like trench coats mm-hmm. and field coats and things that, um, you know, are a bit more um, uh, high end. And uh, as we have talked more to our customer and wanted to broaden our customer base a little bit more, we've gone into products that are a bit more um, streetwear, a bit more unisex and a bit more um, relaxed in their, in their styling. And, um, so the women's, so we're, we're actually trying to kind of move into a more unisex line so that all the, the products that we have are things that look great on both men and women. Mm-hmm. And that of course is, you know, makes, opens up our, our customer base a, a lot more. And, um, it also just kind of makes it a fun design challenge because sure. when you're, when you're trying to design for everyone, but also like a highly individualized type of product, um, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into the the fit and the structure and the style of it, um, and the choices that are made about um, the type of uh, artwork in particular that we're that we're using. So, um, I would say we're actually going more in a, a line of things that anyone can wear. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually uh, this this Christmas we we're doing um, some some children's wear. So that's going to be really fun. We're working with a uh, children's illustrator, a book illustrator, um, and uh, creating some fun hoodies for kids. Yeah, and just to answer my own question, the price points are not not crazy. So the hoodie, I think, is you know one hundred twenty five something like that. And right, yeah, right. so these aren't these aren't crazy uh, price points uh, given that you know the positioning of 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 this art connection. Um, talk a little bit about the linings. What some of the art is like, and what who the artists are. Yeah, um, so we have a kind of a range, and uh, the. The, the through point is really just, you know, uh, organic connections to wonderful artists. And I would say that the more I've been, the longer I've been doing this, the more interesting, um, you know, the the connections have been. Um, we we like things that are colorful and bright and sort of have um, some vibrance to them that will, you know, stand out as you're kind of across the room. So um, color blocking, there's a wonderful artist based in Santa Cruz named Jeremiah Killey who... Um, does these really cool pinwheel shapes, and he does a lot of um, interesting street art. And if you're ever driving around Santa Cruz, you're bound, or actually anywhere in the Bay Area, is bound to see his um, vibrant artwork um, kind of on the walls. And uh, the other artist that we started out with was a, a Bay Area artist in Oakland named Kelly Ording, who does these just beautiful, abstract, um, almost Asian art-inspired landscapes and um and kind of narrative pieces, uh, and and her stuff is is really interesting and beautiful. And then we've also done collaborations with museums like the Smithsonian Institution, where we've put artwork by renowned um, painters and sculptors like Ayoi uh, Kusama and Ai um, Weiwei into uh, some of our our projects and garments. So we we try to run the spectrum of you know really uh, established high-end museum gallery uh, level artists down to folks who uh, we may find at a, an art fair or who, you know, kind of come across our path and um, there's just something about it. But I, I would say there's always something in the artwork that we've chosen for the linings that um, you just can't look away from it. There's something about it that um, no matter whether it's on the inside of a jacket or printed onto fabric or on hanging on the wall, it's going to capture your attention. That's really our goal. Yeah, and I would, from in a more... Uh, naive description, I would say these, the linings tend to be very vibrant, colorful, and pretty bold, uh, right. which is, which makes it cool if you have sort of a, 
an olive drab exterior and then there's this crazy vibrant lining it's a it's a it's a cool effect yes it's very uh jekyll and hyde yeah what tell us a little bit about the enabling technology how do you take a image and create create fabric digitally um we well what's great is that you know literally in the couple of years that i've been doing this it's been get, getting easier um, in the sense that the we can take we can do things where we take a, a camera phone image of uh, a piece of artwork as long as it's high enough resolution um, and then do a little bit of modification on that and translate it into a file that can be printed through sublimation um, onto any t- a different type of fabric. I see. And so it sort of depends on the, the fiber of the, fa- um, the fabric and how much cotton or synthetic fibers are in that, which will kind of enable how bright the, uh, the colors come out. But um, it's a it's a relatively straightforward process, but it's all in the details in terms of um, making sure that things line up properly. And I think the hardest part is really engineering. When you're taking, you know, a flat two-dimensional piece of artwork and trying to engineer it in something that's going to be carved up into um, what will sit on a body, you know, what might look great on a wall is not necessarily going to yeah. translate well into um, that new format. And so we we had a lot of challenges in the beginning with that and, and had to um, kind of redesign the artwork or just forgo things that were quite beautiful but just really would not work when you're, you know, having to cut armholes out of them or, you know, make them into sleeves and wrap around uh, torsos and things like that. So the engineering of the body format is the most challenging part. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Rel Leviso Mori, who's the founder and designer at Silver Lining Bespoke. Um, Rel, tell us a little bit about supply chain and production. You're a, you're, and and I'm I'm thinking a fair number of our listeners, entrepreneurs have probably been interested in creating apparel and apparel brands. It's a fairly common impulse among entrepreneurs. Um, you know, you're a relatively small brand. How, how would you advise, well, how did you do it? And how would you advise people to work out supply chain for, uh, for a small brand? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And, um, it's one of the things that, uh, that I've had to work on a lot. And I would say that there is never going to be a, um, there's never going to be a silver bullet for um, manufacturing supply chain. It is a constant moving target. And, um, you know, I think that as a small, small, small manufacturer starting out, you need to find factories or um, people in your supply chain from your sourcing to your um, production who, you know, are, willing to work with on a smaller scale, um, but who are willing to also deliver uh, great quality. Because, you know, it's important to, I think a lot of folks will um, quickly try to ramp up their, their numbers and, and maybe try and do overseas production right off the bat. And I would really just say, you know, go to the place where you're going to have the most control early on. And if that's a factory that is in the same city that you're in, by all means, you know, you may have, you know, lower... Um, output, but you will be able to go in there on a daily basis and watch how everything is made. And if you don't do that, 
you know, at least the first uh, 10 times that you're doing production, um, you're going to, you're going to, you know, run into some trouble, I think, when you try to really scale. So that's my, my, my advice is to start small um, and to be always um, careful to have a couple of different options for production because as that contracts, that industry contracts, you know, especially in the U.S., um, you know, you're kind of always going to run into issues with supply chain. So and, I think it's a really big challenge. And you have largely produced with U.S. suppliers. Is that right? I have, yeah, mostly. And that's largely just because I think as we grow, uh, we you know, are trying to make sure we understand the um, how, how everything works. And then I would say the other thing that I've seen is um, if you have the ability to vertically integrate, that is ultimately, you know, one of the best things you can do. I think um, being able to really own the supply chain end-to-end is a great business model because you do get that control and you get high quality um, and you can get the economies of scale that, that you need. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do by any means, but if you um, can work towards that, I would say that's, that's one of the smart things to, to look towards. And, and just in a real practical sense, if, if, if you were producing, if one of our listeners wants to start something in the, they're going to use a U.S. producer producing garments like you do, uh, what it, what are typically the minimum orders that you need per style to be able to get started? It really depends, um, but I would say, you know, for practical purposes, you're, you're looking at anywhere from uh, 100 pieces to um, some people will go as low as 50 pieces. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on how complicated the garment is and how um, expensive, expensive it is uh, for the manufacturer. So if it's T-shirts, you know, you're going to have a pretty high minimum, at least 200 or so units. And mm-hmm. then um, things like I make, uh, you know, which are outerwear, they may be willing to go a little lower because they know that those things are a little bit more expensive. Yeah. So that's, I mean, those are smaller numbers than I think most people are guessing. And, and I think mm-hmm. it's because there's a, there is a supply base that is supplying essentially the fashion industry, the more the couture industry, right. that where you're only making a hundred of something anyway. And so there is a supply base that will do that. It's, of course, going to be higher price, but not as prohibitive as maybe people might guess. Uh, no, it's, it's actually relatively easy to, um, you, they, that would be called kind of like a sample run. Yeah. So that would be what you would do to kind of figure it out. Um, and then you would be looking to scale from there. So you might do that at the beginning of the year, and then when you're planning to do your um, your production for uh, your holiday run, which is you know maybe the biggest time of year that you'd be making product for, you would you would triple or, or quadruple that that amount. Okay, so so Rel, this is all really cool. You graduated from Wharton, I guess, is three years or so ago. You went off and and did this thing. And and when I ran into you last week, you described a new venture you're excited about. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you learned in this three-year journey on on Silver Lining Bespoke and how that informed this this next move. Yeah. Um, so the, the project that I'm working on now kind of in conjunction is um, in partnership with my wife, Julie Cox, and it's called Traveler Surf Club. And what it is is kind of a... Um, a, a gym club for surfers um, and we have a space that's very close to a popular surf beach in the Bay Area it's steps from the water and it offers hot showers it offers amenities um, a sauna and lockers 
for uh, long surfboards. And um, it's an interesting, you know, kind of uh, divergence from what I what I was doing with silver lining. But the the hitch is that it's a it's also part of a retail store. So it's kind of like business up front, party in the back. You get down to this location at the beach, and it looks kind of like a uh, cool outdoor gear store. Um, and you can go in there, and you can of course buy silver lining products, which gives me a wonderful place to um, really engage with my customer more and test our our product in real time rather than. Um, waiting for the sort of online life cycle of customer feedback. Um, but as you go through the store, through the back, you uh, end up in this kind of really cool garden sanctuary um, with all these uh, surfers in neoprene wetsuits milling around and um, getting in and out of the water and, and establishing a kind of a little community space for them. All right. So, it, you know, you obviously had, you know, it was a personal reason to work on this, Um with Julie, but I wonder if you could talk about, you know, as you were working on Silver Lining, were there some things where you said, you know, the next time I'm really going to be looking for some different attributes and whether, in fact, the Traveler Surf Club actually satisfies some of those? Yeah, and it actually, it really has, and it's really informed kind of the direction that I've gone with um, with product. Um, and that that's because, you know, we are re- just much more able to see what the customer is interested in, what they're gravitating towards. And so as I mentioned earlier, you know, we started out with trench coats and field coats and things that were really um, more structured garments. And now we're moving more in the way of um, more casual wear and hoodies, which have become really popular. And that has been um, largely informed by the customer base, the surf club. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, in, the ability to get that feedback um, is has been really strong. And I, I had thought about opening a retail store um, just for Silver Lining uh, because I think that when you have the chance to, to sort of um, showcase your brand in an offline way, you get a, so much more traction, um, even though it's sort of cheaper and faster to do things online. It's, it's really amazing um, how, how well your product can kind of get out into the world and get uh, the type of, you know, kind of buzz and excitement around it when you have a space that you can communicate your brand in. And that's, that's one of the biggest learning lessons that I've had. Um, as soon as we opened the store and I put my things on the shelf, they started, you know, just selling super well. Um, and that, you know, was, was a harder thing to do in, in the online space. You know, we just have about a minute, but I want to ask you this question, which is the with with Traveler Surf Club, I suspect you face this decision of do we keep it small in a single location, bootstrap it, or do we raise some capital for a bigger vision? How have you thought through that question and what did you decide to do? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because we actually have decided to go bigger and move into a new space and um, grow into new locations uh throughout California. And I think the reason for that is uh, it was something that was not a proven concept. There were no more, there were no other surf clubs in California when we opened and uh, we were not sure if there would be a a market for it. Um, And certainly not, you know, in kind of a a non-surfy, non-particularly surfy area like the Bay Area. Um, 
as opposed to Southern California. And we've, we've proven a case, and I think that um, if you can get something right one time, you should be able to do it right uh, two, three, four, five times, and that's that's our plan from there, from there. Yeah, and so that's a nice generalizable principle, which is you can start in one location. You always have the option of just sticking there, but if you can prove a model, then you can have the option to, to scale. Um, exactly. Yeah, well, we're... Remarkably, we've we've used our time, so um, that we're going to have to call it quits. But but thanks so much for joining us and for making Thank the you. time. Thank you so much, Carl. Thanks for having me. All right, you can check out the company online at silverliningbespoke.com, and you can check out Traveler Surf Club at travelersf.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.